As I mentioned in our prayer time, it is good to be here. Good to see you all here. By the way, I just want to give a real brief. Um, each year I give this same message about snow days and how we treat snow days at Sweet Communion. Those of us who have been here a while kind of know that. No such thing as a snow day at Sweet Communion. Um, we don't cancel service, not because of snow. Uh, so if you can't make it, if it's not safe for you to venture here, you make that decision, and God bless you. But for those who can, if it's just me and my wife, we're going to have service here. Uh, that's our policy here at Sweet Communion. Now, some things can come up that we just um, can't control. But in our almost 30 years of, of going here, uh, we haven't had a church cancellation for snow. So, if, again, if it's unsafe for you to travel on the roads, then you make that decision. I understand that. Um, but for those who can, um, we'll be here. One of the reasons for that is, hey, it's Wisconsin. You know what? It's, it's Milwaukee. You know what I find out? We have snow days, and our malls are open. Our restaurants are open. Everything is open except the church because we conveniently give excuses. And, and I think, you know, um, um, COVID was one of those eye-opening experiences. It was a tailor-made excuse for many not to come to church. And some of those many haven't even returned yet to church. Some of those churches have closed. And they claim it's because of COVID. But I've got news for you, it ain't COVID. It's the heart that says God is last and he's last on my agenda and I'll only serve him when it's convenient for me. Enough of that. Well, maybe not enough, but I'm going to stop. Anyway. The message we want to speak from is Matthew chapter 22. And this is a continual message that comes. In other words, there, there is a, a story here. And you see that by the first two words, and again. See that? Verse 1, and again, uh, Jesus spoke to them in parables. So we're going to hear a parable of the wedding feast. Then we're going to hear some questions. The skeptics come to Jesus and bombard him with questions. They ask him about uh, the wedding, or so the parables about the wedding feast. They ask him about taxes. They ask him about the resurrection. They ask him about the greatest commandment. And then he turns the tables and asks them a question to wrap up the, uh, the chapter here. And you'll notice in the next chapter is a very strong worded condemnation. And all of these go together because what Jesus is doing is he is challenging and condemning. The questions have come because Jesus has come into Jerusalem like a king and he went into the temple like a boss and he ordered things around like who he is and they didn't like that. And they began to question him, how dare you? What authority do you have to do all these things? And so he starts by telling them about a parable about the kingdom. It says in verse 1, again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. In other words, these parables tell us something about God's rule in heaven and, and what Jesus has come to do. This is an interesting parable 
And let's see, uh, we're going to identify the different characters in the parable and tell you what they mean. Here's what the parable does. It's about a king who invites guests to his son's wedding feast. The guests disregard the invitation. They disrespect it. They even kill the messengers who invite them. Now, that sounds weird, and it is, but it's the story that, that Jesus gives to teach a real and very true scenario that's happening. Thirdly, the king destroys the guests who kill his messengers and disregard his message, and he invites others. And as they come into the wedding feast, the king notices one of the guests who doesn't have the proper wedding attire, and he severely punishes that guest. And the parable is over. So, wow, what was that? Sometimes it's kind of like those dreams we have. We have a dream, and it's like it's so disconnected. And what's going on? What are we to glean from this? What are we to learn from this? Well, there is a very clear and important uh, message that Jesus is telling in this parable. Let's break it down and see. Who's the king? Well, the king in this parable is God representation of God. Who's the son? The son is God's son, Jesus. Who are the messengers? The messengers are the prophets. Who are the guests? The guests is the Jewish nation, Israel. So in this picture, he is showing that God has been sending out an invitation to his guests, and they have totally disregarded this invitation, rejected him, and in fact have killed the messengers that came to give this message. Now, we've seen this same thing and theme in some of the other parables. In the, in the chapter before, we see the parable of the tenants and, and what he was teaching. So each parable may focus or emphasize something slightly different, but the message is there. Jesus has come, and his people have wholeheartedly rejected him. Jesus has invited them to come to and, and come into the kingdom, and, and in, this, in this parable, to come and to be a part of the wedding feast. God has invited them to be part of the wedding feast of his son, and they have other things to do. They're busy doing a lot of stuff. It says in, in that verse, it says, uh, verse 5, but they paid no attention, went off one to his farm, another to his business. And so some of them were engaged in other things, things of life, you would say, but they weren't engaged and weren't a part of the invitation that the king was given. And then the, the parable seems to take a, a weird twist. The first weird twist is where they kill the messengers that the king sends. And that's a picture of the prophets throughout the ages whose message has gone unheeded, disrespected, and some even were killed. You could say, well, that was way back when, or the people of Jesus' day might even think that that was way back when 
when those prophets were treated that way. But they have a very current example, and that example would be John the Baptist. They had taken him, rejected his message, and killed him. In the, per, in the uh, 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 chapter before, Jesus asked them, when they asked Jesus, by what authority do you come into the temple and cleanse it and do all these things? He says, I'll ask you a question. If you answer me that question, then I'll answer yours. John the Baptist, what authority did he come with? And they wouldn't ask, they wouldn't answer that question because they knew that John's authority was from God, but they didn't acknowledge that. And they didn't want to say it wasn't from God because all the people of that day understood clearly and believed that John's authority was from God. You can see that in chapter 21. And so here's a picture of the Old Testament. This is, this is a picture of God dealing with his people in history, and now he has sent his son. One of the verses that, that we can look at is in John chapter 1. You may have memorized it. It's a very simple verse. John chapter 1, verse 11. I'm going to turn to it and, and actually read it, where it says this. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Speaking of Jesus himself, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That's a clear picture of what we see in the Gospels and what we see here in Matthew. In the rest of the New Testament, we get the revelation of what it is God is doing. Here in this parable, we see that God takes these guests and he destroys them. And he invites others. So what does that mean? If, if the guests represent Israel, how has God destroyed them or, or, or treated them in such a way? And how has he invited others? Well, the New Testament is clear with this message. In fact, Paul, one of the greatest writers in the New Testament, told, he, he, he said to, to the Jews that he had been an apostle to reach out to the Jews, and yet he was rejected by them. He himself was a Jew. He himself wanted to persecute the church believers. And he had gone to Damascus with, with uh, uh, authority to, to put in jail those who trusted in Jesus. He had a zeal and a passion to do that, but on the way he met Jesus. And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus identified with those who trusted in him and were facing persecution. Saul was given a message to go out and take the gospel to Jews, to kings, and to the rest of the world. And that defined all of Paul's life. I say Saul sometimes in Paul, but you know that this was Saul whose name was changed to Paul. And he was the greatest missionary, one of the greatest missionaries in the New Testament. It's this Paul who wrote, and uh, I want to I look at several things that he wrote. First in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. So you have to turn around, turn with me so that we can, can see the picture, the plan of salvation that God is planning out and that Jesus is actually saying in this parable. 
In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, a very familiar verse, you may have memorized that too, it says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. By, by the way, Paul is writing this. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now we understand that. That's plain and simple, right? Paul is saying, I don't back down. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I realize the impact that the gospel has in a life. God uses it to bring people to life, to bring them from death to life. But notice God's plan in this verse, too. He says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The word Greek there means a person who's non-Jew, a Gentile. He says God's plan was to present this gospel to the Jew first and then to the rest of the world. Now, we, that might sound strange to some of us. Why did God do things that way? But the fact is, that's what he chose to do, and that's exactly what he did. Again, going back to John chapter 1, verse 11, it, Jesus, it says of Jesus, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Paul had that same experience. There were some Jews that embraced the gospel message and believed in turn. By the way, all of the apostles that were the foundation of the whole church were Jews. And so from there, they spread out um, to, to reach more Jews, but more Gentiles as well. In fact, this is what's called the mystery of the gospel. Um, turn with me to uh, Romans chapter 9. Verse 22. In Romans chapter 9, verse 22, Paul again is presenting this gospel message. He says this, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order that he may in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now, I think he's talking about those vessels of mercy who he's calling to himself. He's not just talking about Gentiles or Jews. He's talking about believers, whether they're Jew or Gentile. He has, he has brought by his mercy, individuals like you and me to embrace the gospel, to hear the gospel, to believe in the gospel, to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. He has reached out to individuals and said, this is God's plan. There are some who have rejected his gospel, but there are some that he has come to and brought them to be a part of his gospel. Look at verse 25. As indeed he says in Hosea, by the way, he's referring now to Old Testament. In other words, this isn't just a new idea in the New Testament. This is a view of God's plan from the very beginning. What is that plan? Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they shall be called sons of the living God. It's God's plan. It has always been God's plan that he would bring his gospel, yes, first to the Jews, but he had a, a purpose and a plan to have that gospel be presented to the whole world. 
and that nations outside of Israel and including Israel will hear the gospel and embrace. But it wasn't, wouldn't just be a people called Israel that were looked at as God's special people. It would be whoever would respond to the gospel, both those from Israel and those from all other nations. This is his purpose. This is his plan. Continue with me in Romans chapter 10, verse 19 and 20. Romans chapter 10, verse 19 and 20. Paul is continuing this thing, talking about the plan of God, the sovereign plan, the sovereignty of God. But I ask, he says, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation, and a foolish nation I will make you, with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. What is he saying? God had told Israel his plan to make them his people, and they utterly rejected, sinned against God, and turned against him. And God says, okay, I'll use those who are not my people, and I will bless them. I will bring my grace upon them so in such a way that you will be jealous of what I've done with them. And you'll see my love poured out on all the world. Verse 20. He says, Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Isn't that a picture of God's grace? We weren't even thinking about God. God poured out his grace upon us. Well, actually the same is true with Israel, except they got big-headed about it. God tells them in Deuteronomy, it's not because of how great you are that I have loved you and set you aside to be my own people. It's simply because I love you that I've done this. In other words, the same thing he did with Israel, he, he said, I'm going to make you my special people, not because you're something special, you're nothing. But I have chosen you and brought you into this so that I might model to the world my grace, my mercy, and my love. Israel began to think it was something in them, that they were worthy of God being their God. And they began to take God for granted. They would often say, God will not destroy his own people. And they go on sinning. This lasted for ages, for centuries, where they kept saying, oh, God's not going to punish us. He's not going to destroy us. He's not going to end us. And God says, watch out. He says, I'm going to bring in a new people. But actually, this was all his plan all along, that the gospel will go out to the entire nation. I also want you to look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. This is Paul speaking again, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. In Ephesians, he's talking about this mystery. This mystery that he's, that, that's been given to him. I'm going to start with verse 1. Are you with me in Ephesians 3, verse 1? Say amen if you are. Amen. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, <laughs> assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. Briefly, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery, which, is not, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So what is this mystery, Paul? Here, here it is. 
verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. Now that's an amazing, it's, it's like the curtain is peeled back so we can see the overall plan of God. And we sing, we praise and say hallelujah because we realize that God's plan includes those who will believe that are Gentiles like me and you today. He hasn't abandoned the Jews completely. As I mentioned, all the apostles were Jews. The gospel went out to Israel first, and many of them believed and were saved. If you read through Acts, you can see that going on, but you can also see that it doesn't stop there. And the gospel has gone out now into all of the world, and it's just as God has planned it. Going back to this parable, the wedding feast. So we see that the king destroyed the first invited guest, and he begins to invite others. If you look at the wording, going back now to Matthew 22, it says, verse 7, the king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murders and burned their city. Jesus is going to talk more about that. This is in reference to Jerusalem, and in fact, there's a, a time, AD 70, when the, the uh, city of Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying was going to happen. And he says this, the wedding, excuse me, verse 8. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. That's an interesting statement. It's an absolutely true statement. Those invited were not worthy. But it begs the question, are there some who are worthy? Are there? Let's look at what he says here. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. <laughs> so the wedding was filled with guests. He says, first of all, the wedding, the wedding, the feast was ready, but those invited weren't worthy. I want you to go out and invite any and everybody that you can. And sometimes we get the idea, wow, well, what does this mean that, that, that you know, everybody comes and and can just come in and, and be a child of God? Does, does it, does, is, is this teaching universalism that all the world is going to be saved eventually? No, it's not teaching that at all. Not at all. The next part of this story helps us understand. It's those servants went out into the roads. Excuse me, verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. He said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garden? You can see that the king is very displeased. How did you even get in here without a wedding garden? We need to understand a little bit about culture in that day, right? 
The king was inviting his guests, and the king had supplied everything they needed to be a part of the wedding. And it's not that much different in our day. You know, you show by what you wear your regard for something. If I invited you to my son's wedding, and you came in the old clothes that you was working in the garden in, and then barely just dust off the dust and the mud and just trampled on into the building and say, here I am, I'm ready to enjoy this wedding. I would be greatly offended. Like, dude, you need to go home and wash up. You need to put on some clean jeans and some shoes that weren't muddy. And especially if I invited you to be a part of the wedding and we had already had you fitted for your tux and your shoes and all that had been provided, you just decided that morning you were going to wash your car and after washing it, whatever mud was on your shoes and whatever you had on, you just going to show up and everybody ought to just be cool with it. The king says, what you doing in here? How did you even get in here? Here's the clue. He said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. What does that mean? I remember when I would discipline my children. I didn't mean to do this to antagonize them, but I would ask them the question, why did you do that? They couldn't answer. Uh, Dad, I just felt like being stupid and foolish, so I just decided to do exactly what you told me not to do. They know if they said that, they'd be flying across the wall somewhere. There is no answer to the, to the question, why are you dressed this way when everything has been provided for you to be dressed properly? So he was speechless. In other words, he had no defense. Now, he could have done like we do today, try to get some stupid argument. But the fact is, it doesn't hold any water. He has no defense. What does it speak of? We said the king represents God. The son represents God's son, Jesus. The guest represents the Jewish nation who has rejected their king beaten and killed the messengers, which are the Old Testament prophets. The other guests represent the church, believers today who trust in Christ. Proper attire, what does that represent? Well, let's look at a few things. I've been struggling with my notes this morning, but... I want to bring you to Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. 
So bear with me. Learn, turn in the Old Testament, Isaiah 61, verse 10. Isaiah 61, 10 says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. He's saying God has provided what was needed so that we would be dressed properly. Can I take you briefly back to Genesis chapter 3? Adam and Eve sinned. They hid from God when they discovered their nakedness. And what did they do? They tried to cover themselves. They made fig leaves for clothes. Later on in verse 21 in that same chapter, God says, ah, fig leaves, that, that, that ain't going to do. I will provide you with clothes. The Bible says he provided them with clothes of skin, animal skin and such. And so the first animal that died, died to clothe properly Adam and Eve so they could actually stand before God. Clothing represents, old Sunday school answer, yes, Jesus. Represents that which Jesus himself provides that's absolutely necessary for us to stand in the presence of God. And so this one guest had the nerve to stand before God in his own righteousness. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, Our righteousness is like filthy rags. It won't do. Isaiah 61.10 that we just read shows that God will clothe us with his righteousness. The Bible tells us his righteousness is Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ that we must be clothed with. What is Jesus saying in this parable? He says, look, I'm inviting all to come, but when you come, you better bring me. You better be clothed in me. Nothing else will do. The king has no patience. He will not endure anything else. Friend, how did you get in here dressed like that? He doesn't say, oh man, this is bad. Why don't you go in the closet over there and we'll whip you up something to wear. He says, get out. He says, servants, take him out and punish, severely punish him. Now, the wording is very strong. Jesus uses, he says, it's going to be gnashing of teeth. He's talking about eternal destruction. He's talking about hell. It sounds like this is such a severe thing for not wearing the right thing. Oh, it's way more than that. Either we come clothed in our own righteousness, which is unfit and filthy and a disgrace and a disrespect to God and we come to him like that when he's already provided all that we need in his son. That's what he's saying here. Jesus is saying to the nation, you have rejected me and I'm the one that provides the only salvation 
that you can have. Remember in the last chapter when he says, haven't you ever heard? The stone that's rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That's who Jesus is. You dare not reject him. You dare not think you can come into the party, into the feast, without wearing appropriate wear. That means it's a sal salvation, a garment of salvation, which really is the blood of Christ. In Revelation, it talks about those who, who are delivered. They're wearing white robes, and, and they, they, they have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Their garments speak of Christ and his sacrifice for his people. Let's go on. In Matthew chapter 22, we have the question about taxes. It's not really like a, a confusing riddle for us as, you know, I think the, the parable we had to kind of sift through and understand. But these questions, they kind of reveal themselves. Look, look, look at the first one. It says in verse 15, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. So we already know what they're trying to do. The motive for them in these questions is to ridicule Jesus so that he might be rejected. In fact, they're doing exactly what Jesus said they were going to do. They're rejecting the message from the king. They're rejecting the son himself. So their motive is to entangle him in his words. And the question really is, you know the, the actual question, uh, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But remember in, in chapter 21, Jesus has come into Jerusalem as a king, presented as a king, and then he walked straight into the temple and took charge. And they're saying in all these questions, who gives you the authority to do this? Now, in this question, it's a little twisted. They're saying, hey, if you really are king, will you accept taxes to you? Should people pay taxes to you? Or should it be paying them to Caesar? And there's a double kind of thread in there. They're saying, like, if you say you're the king and taxes ought to come to you, then that, that's, that's a slight towards Caesar, and that's a real easy thing to push. But if you're saying that taxes ought to continue to go to Caesar so that you don't get any heat, then what kind of king are you? A king that doesn't even command respect from his subjects. And so they are trying to, just trying to ridicule Jesus and notice his answer. Bring me a coin, he says. He says, <laughs> I like it. He says, bring me a coin. He doesn't reach in his pocket and pull out a coin because he don't have any. He's not rich. He doesn't have much money. In fact, all of his disciples are there. To, to, there's a whole team of people who give so that Jesus and his disciples can, can eat. You notice, remember, on the way uh, in last chapter, he was on his way back into Jerusalem. He was hungry. And what did he do? Go in the store and buy something. He didn't have no, have no money for food. He had to just pick corn along the way in the fields that, that he could. He was looking for a fig, figs from a tree and he found none. We saw the curse of the fig tree there. But the point is, he says, give me a coin. They gave him a coin. He says, whose image is on this coin? And they say, Caesar's. And he says, render to Caesar that which is Caesar and to God that which is God. But wait a minute, what is, it, what is, what is he getting at here? 
Genesis 1.26 says that God made man in his image, in his likeness. Genesis 9, verse 6, after the flood, God, God sets down a law, whoever kills man because he's made in the image of God will suffer death himself. God makes a point. Each human being is made in the image of God. If you could slice us open, you would see we are made like God. We have God's image stamped on us, in essence. Jesus is saying what's stamped on this coin is the image of Caesar. Give back to Caesar what belongs to him. What's stamped on the inner mind, on the inner soul, on your heart is God. You belong to him. Render what belongs to God back to God. He's saying, you need to know where you came from and whose image you was made in. You're not made an individual to go your own way and do your own thing. I get so sick of that message in America today. You can do anything you want. No, God is not okay in that message. You don't just do whatever you want. In fact, you don't even do what makes you happy. It ain't about your happiness. Because you can't achieve your happiness outside of doing what you were designed for. The image of God, of glorifying him. That's why we don't find happiness in America. No matter how many houses we got, no matter how big our bank account is, we still won't find happiness. People who are rich and famous and seem to have everything are committing suicide at an astounding rate. Why is that? They can't find it. They're searching for it. They come to us as poor Christians who've been persecuted and gone through all kinds of stuff in our lives, and they say, why do you smile? Why do you have joy? You can't have that apart from being connected to the one you are made in the image of. God is calling you to, to render yourself back to the God who made you. And he will complete you. He will satisfy you. That doesn't mean happily ever after on this earth, but it does mean happily ever after in heaven. You know what I mean? You're going to have struggles here, but you are going to be completed in heaven. Jesus is an astounding answer there. The next question about the resurrection. Same motive. You notice it says the same day. Look at verse 23. The same day Sadducees came. They're trying to do the same thing. Even tell, them, tell us that they don't believe in the resurrection, yet they're going to ask a question about the resurrection. How ridiculous. I call it the ridiculous hypothetical. When you hear a hypothetical question, you kind of get ready for ridiculous. And this is, the, this, is, this is like the king of ridiculousness. This question that they ask, a man had a wife, he married her, and they didn't have no children, and he had seven brothers, and he died before they didn't have children. And you know what the law said, by the way, the law does say this, that, that he is to, his, his next brother in line is supposed to marry her and bring up children. That's, that's what the law says, and that's, that's what God's plan was. And, and so they're not ridiculing that. They're saying, well, how can this happen if all seven of them were married to her, and then they all seven die, and then she dies, and now they're in heaven? What happens? This is like a ridiculous question, right? It's the same ridiculous question I get today about 
cremation. If a believer is cremated, how in the world are they going to be resurrected? Are you kidding me? People actually ask that question, and they think they're serious. The answer is the same answer that Jesus says. You are wrong. What, what, what he says is you're wrong in this. You are wrong to question, with your ridiculous question, God's plan, his purpose, and his power. We think if something doesn't make sense to us, we can just throw it out. The audacity, the arrogance of our intellect to, to hold hostage God by our intellect, really. That's what we do. Jesus comes down hard on them. He says, you think you know so much, and you don't. You don't, you're wrong. You don't know the scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. It is nothing for God to bring back and to restore the creation that he has made. Do I know how he does that? Absolutely not. I don't know how he made me. You don't know how he made you. Ask your doctor, and he don't know how he made you. We can't even understand a virus. <laughs> and we claim we can understand physical man and even spiritual man. You know, we, we say that the biggest problem we have today is, is, um, um, is, is mental health. If that's the biggest problem we have, we are really in trouble. We don't understand the first thing about mental health. We don't. We absolutely do not. People put degrees behind their names and act like they know. If you know so much, how come you ain't changed nothing? Haven't helped a person. Give them drugs till they can't even think no more and claim you've healed them. We act like we understand things and we hold God subject to our understanding of something. Jesus says, you know nothing. He doesn't, he doesn't even try to explain how God's going to do that because that's a ridiculous... <laughs> That's a ridiculous thought that we couldn't even comprehend if he was to explain that to us. The most educated amongst us turn out to be fools when they say silly things. Like, we don't know what a woman is. And we can't define a man. And you can be all kinds of something in between. And we can change you from one to the other. And yet, we lift up these clowns and idiots as if they can tell us something that God cannot or does not. Jesus says, you don't understand 
And I'm not going to even try to explain it to you. I'm going to tell you what's true. You can challenge it, and it will pass the test. But it's not based on your intellect or even your accepting it. God is going to raise the dead. What about that is normal? What about that can we explain in human terms? We cannot. It's far above us. Beyond my pay grade, we say. That's God's business. He's the one that created and with words said, let there be and there was. Why can I not understand that he still does that and will do that? Let there be and there will be. Why do I sit with skeptical eyes towards God and challenge him? But that's what the skeptic is doing. And that's what these are doing to Jesus. And we'll see in chapter 23, he has a harsh judgment against all who reject him. We don't like the way that sounds, but it is so true. The gospel preaches that message, embrace Jesus or die. We don't like that message. Embrace Jesus or perish in all of eternity. We don't like that message. Why? Because our hearts are sinful and we are already in a default uh, position of hating authority and what God says. But he says that we shoot the messenger. And that's what the history of Israel has been. And that's what Jesus says is going to happen. They asked one more question that the greatest commandment. And you need to understand, this is the same motive. It says in verse 34, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. It says the lawyer asked him a question to test him. So the, the same motive the same evil heart, the same rejection of Jesus is what's behind asking this question. Even though the question itself sounds innocent, and not even innocent, it sounds productive and good. What's the greatest commandment? You can ask theological questions and have great knowledge of biblical content and yet be a fool. And ask Jesus, and he answers this question. Because it's actually a good question, even though their purpose for asking it is not good. What's the greatest commandment? He doesn't even hesitate. He doesn't have to think. He doesn't have to read any more books. He says it right off. The greatest commandment is that you love God. How? In what way? With all your heart. There's nothing left. It's love God with all your heart. And he said, you want another one? The second one is, is, is balanced with that. Love your neighbor. Love the stranger. Love others. How? To what extent? As you love yourself. That's the highest degree. Jesus set such a high, a high level. He's saying, you cannot achieve this. You can't. You can't. 
See, if you love God with all your heart, there will be nothing, absolutely nothing, stopping you from absolutely serving God. Jesus explained this to one man who was rich. He said, go sell all you have and give it to the poor. Oh, man. I'm willing to serve God 90%, but not 100%. He wasn't willing to serve God 90 It just revealed that his heart was wicked. If we absolutely serve God, 100% with all that we have, wouldn't every one of our churches be full? Sunday? <laughs> Any other day that we met? Would COVID stop us from coming to church? Would a cough with a cold, with more stuff to do. Oh, I'm tired because I watched the Packers game last night. Whatever it is, would any of that stop us from serving God if we absolutely love God 100%? He says the second is like this. And what he's saying is the first one will always produce the second one, and that's how you can tell whether you're real or not. You love your neighbor as yourself. You can't love God with all your heart and not love your neighbor, and to what extent, as yourself. So he really reveals our deficiency and a point that we come to God naked and we need clothing. Going back to that parable of the man coming into the wedding feast without proper clothing, we absolutely need the righteousness that comes from God. So he asked them a question to end, and, and you can think on, on this question. Jesus asked the Christ. It's one that you've studied in the Old Testament. You know that the Bible talks about him. Who is he? Whose son is he? Very simple question, and they answered that right away. He's the son of David. And that's a true answer, but Jesus is saying this. If he's merely the son of another man, if he's merely a human being, a descendant of David, why does David worship praise and lift him up and he says my lord <laughs> the lord said to my lord to find that statement i think it's in psalm 1 110 thank you you can find that statement it's repeated in hebrews and other passages as well he he points out that this christ that's promised in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New Testament. He is the very Christ. This Christ is not a mere man. This Christ is deity, God himself. He is the one that God, Jehovah, says, sit at my right hand till I make put your enemies under your feet. In other words, he's going to be absolutely victorious and a conqueror of all of God's creation. That's Jesus. Jesus says, David calls him Lord. How's he his son? Just a simple, simple, straightforward question. This wasn't to, to stun them. It was just simple truth. This Christ is way more than you give him credit for. And the, the scriptures point this out and make it clear. He is God. And Jesus is standing right there in front of him. He's almost like saying, you know, when he comes, he's probably going to do stuff like cleanse the temple. 
heal people right before you in the temple, do miracles right in front of you. He's probably going to proclaim exactly what's going to happen to him and the timing that he's going to happen, that he is one day going to come into Jerusalem, be rejected, be beaten, be killed, and be raised from the dead. He's probably going to do exactly what I'm doing. He's standing right in front of him. But for us today, Jesus, by way of his word, is standing in front of us. Here's the message. Do not take God's patience and his grace for granted. Israel is a nation that did that. Notice what he said to the people invited to the feast. They weren't worthy. The answer to this is none of us are worthy. God has called us and even chosen us, not based on our worthiness, we have none. Nonetheless, he's chosen us. Don't take that for granted. Israel had taken that for granted and said, you know what? We part of that special group, and hey, you know, we just it. We have believers today, well, people today, who act in that same way. You have been called by God to embrace his son. You've been chosen by God. God's image has been implanted on you. You are to please him and render yourself completely to him. Render your heart to God. Don't let your foolish intellect get in the way. Faith does not rest on human intellect. But what God has done and what God will do, fully appreciating, fully appreciating what God has done, what he says he will do, and that he will do that. Embrace God. Trust in his son. Render yourself for his service. The king is coming. He's calling his subjects to receive him. Will you embrace the Lord Jesus Christ today? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the message that has come from the Old Testament, from your prophets, from the New Testament, the apostles, and even from yourself. You have given us the wonderful opportunity to sit here today and to hear your word. May we embrace it. May we not take it for granted. May we recognize that we are not worthy, and yet you have called us to yourself. For all who have called, been called, Lord, we pray. We might appreciate that. We might worship you and praise you. We might give ourselves wholeheartedly to you. Right now, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.